Welcome to Wednesday Chapel where we think biblically about things. Uh, that's kind of how we have looked at Wednesdays and said we want to we want to talk on Wednesdays thinking biblically about a variety of subjects. As Harry mentioned on Monday, uh, that's kind of our campus culture day, thinking about the heart. Wednesdays is, is the mind, and Fridays is the hands. And we're looking forward to Dr. MacArthur being here Friday. Uh, I am the substitute preacher today. You might have seen uh, that it was supposed to be Dr. Horner, but he's out of town speaking on the Reformation somewhere, which isn't a surprise. He has expertise in that area. He teaches a class here on Luther. But Dr. Horner, our favorite, you know, Indiana Jones archetype professor here. He uh, climbs El Cap and he visits Italy and he speaks many languages. Uh, he'll be back in November, so we are excited to have him back. Last Wednesday, Dr. Chow was correct in mentioning that I did ask him in an email to speak on assurance, and yes, it was mentioned in that email that it may or may not have something to do with midterms and grades and you questioning your salvation. And I went back and read it because I wasn't sure about it, and I did write that. And on a serious note, I'm so thankful. I mean, it's just amazing to all the people that we can bring in to, to speak, whether it's our own faculty and staff or outside of here. Uh, but what he was able to help us understand about the connection between a high view of assurance and a high expectation of perseverance was amazing, and I was thankful for that. What he may not have helped that day was your grades because we did get out at like 1040, and you probably had to sprint to class. So, you know, for all that maybe our, our hearts were encouraged, uh, maybe you got a tardy that day, I will try to not uh, near that, but really thankful for Dr. Chow. And as you saw this morning, there's just so much good going on right now on campus. And you may feel overwhelmed, there may seem like there's too much on top of it all, the Dodgers in the World Series. The only reason that came to mind is because JC is sitting right there and, um, yeah, he, he's actually just re-watching the game on his phone from last night. Loves the Dodgers. But there's a lot going on on campus right now, and we're excited for that. This semester, this kind of seems like a wave, a high point. And you have, even just this week alone, between tip-off of the basketball season tomorrow night and Senior Soccer Day is on Saturday. So we'd love if you can make it out to that and see uh, Senior Day for both the men's and women's teams. Uh, time to celebrate those seniors who have been around a while and also continue to follow their season. Cross-country, listen, you guys are just always running. And that, every time I mention it, I feel like that's all I say, but you're just always running, and it seems always winning, so continue on that. Golf team, if we knew who you were, you know, kudos. <laughs> Listen, I know your coach, Jason Semmelsberger, is awesome, and just thankful for him and the great way that he leads your team, and you guys play year-round, and you're doing a wonderful job. In women's volleyball, deep breath, um, I still feel somewhat responsible. The silent spike fiasco, we didn't know that cheering too loud could be detrimental to the start of the season, but we learned that lesson. And so, Wes, no silent spike type things for basketball season. Let's just come in and cheer moderately to medium loud so as not so to avoid that. But women's volleyball, continue to uh, be excited for your season. So there's lots going on. Then on top of that, so we are just not jock-centric here. Uh, we do know that there is a theater arts production of Over the River. Big, we got the shout out there. They're going into week two of it, been getting rave reviews, you know, it's all over the Hollywood Reporter, and uh, people were coming in droves to see it, but in all reality, make it out this weekend, it's, they'll get to see that production, it's wonderfully done, and on top of that, Harvest Blend, Mustang Madness, Fall Thing next week, even rumors of a poetry slam, so I have nothing for that, other than to go. 
Then there was life outside of here. You just got off engage week, and that had you busy in a way, and you're probably playing catch-up from there. Uh, some of you, it's, you're involved deeply in your local church ministries, and we want to acknowledge that. So you could come in on a Wednesday with just a lot. And, uh, and then some of you are thinking about what's next after this. Maybe you're graduating in December, or as you know, you're thinking forward to graduating in May, some of the seniors or juniors thinking about internships, and you have that on your mind, which by the way, next Thursday, November 2nd, in the lower calf, uh, alumni and development are putting on a night from 6.30 to 8 in the lower calf next Thursday to the 2nd. Uh, it's a networking night. There will be free coffee. There's going to be over 20 alumni who work in a variety of fields, not just Princess Cruise Lines, that you could come and look about finding gainful employment after graduation here, or even an internship for next summer. So lots and lots and lots. And you could come into chapel and feel the weight of that and why we want to throw dodgeballs from the stage and, and sing and then take time in the Word is because it, it's, it feels good to take that deep breath and let it out and then come in here and be reminded from God's Word that all is well. Thankful for Harry's message Monday that the King, who is also the Son, sits on the throne. And I think the, the phrase that stood out to me that summarized that for the believer, when you have that confidence, that assurance that Abner talked about the prior week, when Harry said, all is calm in heaven. And it just, it, it brought peace to my life that Monday. With everything not just here and around, but around the world, to be reminded that the king sits on the throne and he's not threatened, he's not worried. Uh, he's confident in his children. And he gives us the power that we sang of this morning in Christ to persevere. And so thankful for that. Today we're gonna do a little something different. Uh, thinking biblically, you may feel like you are on Reformation overload. We are moving towards October 31st next week to celebrate the 500th year anniversary of Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the door of, Witten, or on the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg. And you've heard about it, and you may be like, I'm just at the max, I'm like maxed out. But maybe because you've just continued to hear talks on Luther. And that's actually what Dr. Horner was gonna do, expert in it, but because he had to go and actually talk about that somewhere else, uh, I got called on and I went to him to talk to him and uh, we talked and we got talking about a person pre-Luther, a man named Erasmus, who, known to some, but he is known to a lot as the forgotten reformer, so some of you may know of him but know little, some of you don't know of him because he is the forgotten reformer. And we're gonna look at Erasmus' life today, so I can't really say open your text to a certain text, but we'll get there. But what I wanna do today in talking about Erasmus is to think about the renaissance that preceded the Reformation, and particularly in the life of Erasmus, the personal renaissance. What had to happen in him to lay a footpath that Luther, Luther would later go on to pave? Because what, what happened with Luther had to start somewhere prior to that. And you know the names of Wycliffe and Huss and others, but you may not be that familiar with Erasmus. And we're gonna think biblically today about his life. When I asked Dr. Horner to talk about Erasmus, uh, just he and I getting together. This is what I love about him. I'm like, hey, you know, you, you do this stuff on Luther. You have a class. Can I come to your office and ask you a few questions about Erasmus? And in all seriousness, he looks at me and goes, in Latin or English? I was like, bruh. Bruh. Pittsburgh. Like, we barely got English down. So he told me some things that I needed to know about Erasmus, pointed me in the right direction. Uh, but what I want to highlight this morning is to look at a life of a man who was a contemporary of Martin Luther. He, would he was 17 years older than him, and uh, he played a significant role in the events leading up to 1517. And you might be wondering how connected 
to Luther was Erasmus, how vital was Erasmus to the Reformation, and I think it's encapsulated in a quote that went around the 1500s that was summarized like this, Erasmus laid the egg that Luther went on to hatch. That was spoken of the contemporaries of that time period, that they saw the, the seamless garment woven between a Renaissance humanist like Erasmus and a Protestant reformer like Luther. What Luther was able to take and run with to cause a revolution started with a renaissance and a personal reformation for a guy like Erasmus. And so we're going to look at that today as the connection between the two, to think biblically about it. And why I think he matters to you is because he was, he was a, a titan of an intellect, and he was known far and wide in his day throughout Europe in that time, early 1500s, late 1400s. And I think he would want to speak to a group of young, bright, college-educated Christians and have a few things to say to you by way of encouragement. That was his predominant tone, encouragement. He wasn't as brash and bold as Luther. And I think we can learn from his life, from his example, and also be warned by it at the same time. So I'm not tending to just be a hagiography where we only look at the good, where we'll balance it out. But first I want to tell you a little bit about Erasmus, and this is a simple two-tiered outline with the time we have. Uh, Maybe spend 15 minutes on who was Erasmus and then 15 minutes on why he matters today. So let me pray and then we'll get going. Father, we thank you for this morning. What, What sweet celebration we could have gathering this Wednesday, this week. Uh, With everything else that we have, uh, we are most blessed to spend an hour together here celebrating you, singing praises to your name of which you alone are worthy, reminded of our own smallness and your greatness, the contrast between the two, yet you, through Christ, have brought us into your family and called us sons and daughters, and we thank you for that. Pray that we can learn this morning from someone in the history of the church who did not set out to do anything perhaps that revolutionary, but as you do intend in your providence with every single life of every one of your children, to use for your glory in the ultimate plan of redemption. And so may that help us and encourage us and inspire us this morning. Amen. So, who was Erasmus? I'm going to give you four phrases about him to hang some hooks on. Who was Erasmus? First, we'll talk about uh, his start. He was a son of medievalism. Erasmus of Rotterdam, Netherlands, a.k.a. Holland, was born on October 28, 1466, or some historians say 1469, because you just never really know somebody's birthday back then. So give or take three years. Uh, Born in Rotterdam, Netherlands, he was a son of medievalism, and what I mean by that is uh, medievalism was an era, uh, Middle Ages, 500 to 1500 after Christ, and that was the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, medievalism, in which he was born into, yet he would help lead humanity, at least in Europe, out of. Uh, He was born to... Gerard and Margaret, they never married, and according to Erasmus' account, when his uh, father's family disapproved the idea of his parents marrying, uh, Gerard ran away to Rome to become a copyist, and his mom raised him until he was 13, and she died of the plague. His father comes back to raise him. He dies of the plague. Keep that in mind. When we learn about the Reformation even, the beginning parts of it, I mean, this is an era coming out of the bubonic plague that, I mean, death was an ominous cloud that hung over the entire continent of Europe. Everywhere you went, even though it was at its height 100 years prior to Erasmus being born, 
Uh, just the idea of losing both your parents to that, uh, Erasmus in his letters would talk about constantly being in fear as he traveled around the continent of Europe, knowing that, I mean, he would go to places, and it's like, oh, you know, the plague just wiped a couple hundred people out here. Be wary of that. And he always struggled with sickness, and so that kind of flavors even how we understand history at that time, even folk religion that time. That which people didn't learn in the church, because a lot of them illiterate and didn't understand the mother tongue of Latin that most of the priests spoke in, would sit there, really get nothing out of a service, go home and have to concoct their own belief system for why everyone around them was dying and where they would go after they died. So you can see the connection when indulgences come along. Hey, if you're not sure what happened to like the five people in your family that just died in the last five months, how about buy an indulgence for them? Help pay for St. Peter's Basilica and you'll free them from purgatory. Folk religion. Combining both what maybe they thought they knew about God from what they were learning in medieval times with, well, if nobody's really teaching you from the priesthood, you're going to come up with your own thing. And that's what he was born into. Education played a large role in that. So his legal guardians, after his parents died of the plague when he was 13, uh, his legal guardians on his dad's side thought it best to send him to a monastery to become a monk uh, to fill in the shoes of his father because that's what they wanted Gerard to do. He goes down that path of monkdom, but for whatever reason, Erasmus loved studying languages, poetry, literature, along with the Bible. Uh, he, he was a humanist at the time, which was happening during the Renaissance, which was people that they wanted to go beyond what was just being given to them. They wanted to study more. And maybe you feel a little bit like that coming to masters. There's a, there's a major you're gonna study. Uh, there's some gen eds you have to take in Bible. But you just have this inherent curiosity. You have something, some itch you wanna scratch and you just pursue it on your own. For Erasmus, it was the languages which developed him into a fine linguist and a scholar as a teenager, both learning in the monastery and reading in libraries and finding his own tutors to teach him. He stayed in, his mo in the monastery until his 20s, uh, excelled in his study by way of uh, being self-taught, now also finding uh, enlightened tutors to teach him. Uh, when he was 29, he left the monastery to become a secretary to a traveling French bishop, which took him to France, where he, France, where he studied at the University of Paris and invented the scone. That's a lie. He did study at the University of Paris, but I'm just trying to keep you awake. We're talking about Erasmus here. Uh, I refer to him being a son of medievalism because he was born in the twilight of the Middle Ages, a time when political and religious authority were often inseparable. And for a man like Erasmus, born into a feudal system of haves and have-nots, there wasn't much of a chance for him to break free of where he started. So a monastery might not have been a bad gig in the sense you go and be a monk and you have your own, eke out your own quiet living, literally, and kind of that's your way in life. I mean, he didn't have parents left. He had no siblings. But that wasn't enough for Erasmus. He wanted to study, and with the dawn of the Renaissance period, an age of discovery is happening, and this matters in his life because he caught the spirit of the new age of the Renaissance in the 1500s and never looked back. He took it and ran with it. He didn't reject the handed down beliefs of medieval scholasticism, the Middle Ages. He didn't reject them, but he said, what happened before that time? Before 500. In that thousand years, there were original writers. There were church fathers. There were Greek and, and Roman speakers and writers, and I want to study them. I just don't want to take what's already being given down to me. And, and when he was able to read Latin and Greek and Hebrew on his own, he went back to those sources, Socrates, Cicero, and Plato from secular writers and early church fathers like Augustine and Jerome and Origen. So he was a son of medievalism, but that led to him becoming point two, the prince of humanism. The journey had already begun, and by the time he was in his 30s, and I mentioned this earlier, he was known throughout the countries of Europe at the time as the Prince of Humanism. 
One biographer at the beginning of a book on Erasmus said, he was the intellectual titan of the Renaissance, one of the most learned men of his or any other age. Another preface to a biography on Erasmus said, to many of his contemporaries, he was the greatest man alive, the modern Socrates, whose learning and wisdom had not been equaled for a thousand years. He was the man. I mean, if you, if you were somebody in the know, a king, a priest, a prince, an archbishop, the pope, anybody with any form of education, if you were a little kind of party, hanging out with the other elites, you read Erasmus. And if you didn't, you were on the out. I don't even know who his modern equivalent would be today. Somebody known and read worldwide. Maybe in a, you know, 50 years ago, it could have been a guy like a C.S. Lewis or a G.K. Chesterton, kind of had a broad appeal to a wide audience. But there really, as I talked to Dr. Horn about this, there was no equivalent of Erasmus that we could make a comparison to today that held and commanded the respect of the most learned people then, but it never really got down to the rest of society because of literacy. And the printing press was just coming around, which the timing of that was perfect because then his books, his ideas, The Praise of Folly, The Christian Handbook, uh, The Handbook of Christian Service, some of his early writings, 1503, 1509, once the printing press was able to put those in mass circulation, then as people became more literate, they could read what he was writing in Latin. And suddenly this, this guy's ideas were spreading throughout everyone. So he was, he was the prince of humanism a great teacher and a tutor to rich people's kids. And, and because he was so well-versed in the languages, the, the priests and the, I should say, the princes and the kings of that time sought him out to come and teach their own children, to be their private tutor. Or universities would seek him out to come and be a guest lecturer. He was that impressive. And this coincided with the dawn of the Renaissance. And the worldview that time was humanism, so some call Erasmus the premier Renaissance humanist. What I want to just highlight when I say that is, when you hear humanism, what do you think of? You might know the definition today. I mean, it's, it's an anti-God philosophy. Their slogan, if you go to a, a humanist website, the American Humanist Association, I believe it is, is that uh, they would say about themselves, you can be good without God. So humanism of today, a philosophy of them would be anti-God. We can still be good people. We're not so bad after all. But you might see an expression of it just in society like the Burning Man Festival, you know, where we're going we're gonna to come and celebrate our humanity. But that wasn't humanism of then. Just think basically, you know, humanism, humanities, arts, languages, study. That, that was humanism back then. It wasn't anti-God. What it did was probably raise the expectation of humans. It was just to say, look, we have something to contribute, and the past thousand years, it hasn't seemed like we've been looking at much of that. We've just kind of been stuck in whatever the medieval scholastics have been teaching us, but let's go back before them. And so the, kind of the philosophy of the day in that time period of humanists would have been back to the sources, ad fontis, back to the fountains. That was the spirit of the age for humanists. It was to say, let's go back and study it for ourselves. Let's read the original manuscripts for ourselves and let's come to our own conclusions. And in that, maybe you find out error of the people that have been teaching you for the last, you know, couple hundred years. So he was a prince of humanism. He was the man. He was well known, which leads us to our third point about him. He was the forerunner to Luther. Luther began reading Erasmus, 17 years his younger, 
And I call him the forerunner to Luther, one of the forerunners to Luther. There were others like Wycliffe and William of Ockham and Jan Hus, but Luther knew of and highly esteemed Erasmus. He wrote a letter, they would write letters back and forth back then because you didn't text if you didn't put that together. Uh, you would communicate with others. It was, you know, even going back to Jerome and August, Augustine, they would communicate via letters. And these aren't just like, hey, having a good day, you know, had, had some lunch, the soup was nice, uh, see you at Thanksgiving, best regards, Adam, in the mail. I mean, these would have been, you know, 15, 20 plus page letters that would have been distributed between thinkers and elitists of the day. And so Luther and Erasmus, though never met in person, would communicate via letters. And this is a letter Luther wrote to Erasmus in 1518. So post nailing of the theses on the door. And this is where you see him extol his brilliance. He writes, for who is there in whose heart Erasmus does not occupy a central place to whom Erasmus is not the teacher who holds him in thrall? I speak of those love who love learning as it should be loved. It is my sense of duty for all that you do for us in your books. This insists on being expressed in words. For if I keep silent, I don't want anything one to think this is due to jealousy. What Luther was alluding to in that letter was, look, I mean, this is only a year after the Wittenberg thing. Luther is a small town priest. He's not well known. I mean, it took some time from whenever he posts the theses on the door for that word to get out. But Erasmus is known. I mean, he had been published all the way back to 1503, mass circulated, so Luther looks up to Erasmus, and he probably senses in some of Erasmus's writings praise of folly, which was calling out, kind of in a backhanded way, the, the foolishness of relics and works-based religion and, you know, making long trips to Rome, or whatever it might be that it was folly to try to pursue God in a way that was just through human means. And then the handbook of the Christian servant he wrote in 1509, uh, or 1503, Praise of Folly 1509, that was, it was basically almost like the mere Christianity of the day. Um, a queen had said, hey, can you boil down the Christian life into like a set of 20 principles? And he writes that. So Luther's reading Erasmus and he extols him and says, look, you're the teacher of teachers. There was such a connection even between the start of Luther's career when he started publishing his writing that sounded kind of not subversive, maybe that, that might be a little too strong, but people were thinking that these, these guys sound similar. They're calling out the church, the magisterium, the popes, the priests, the Catholic church. People were accusing Luther of basically sending out letters and writings that Erasmus was writing behind the scenes. And Erasmus had to continually come out and defend himself and like, look, I've barely let, read any of what Luther's writing, let alone I'm writing for him. So there's a link between the two. But the two main ways in which Erasmus laid the egg that Luther hatched would have been New Testament translation and reform of the church within. So when we think about what Erasmus contributed, just remember these two things. It was Erasmus when he learned the languages, the Latin. He reads Jerome's Vulgate, which was the, the Bible of the Catholic Church at the time. And he notices, once he learns Greek and goes back to some original manuscripts he gets his hands on, that there are a lot of errors in the Vulgate. And so he comes up with a new translation. He finds the correct translation in the Greek, translates it in the Latin, compares it to what they were using, the Vulgate, and says, yeah, there's some big-time errors in here that are causing for some of the theological and in-practice errors in the Catholic Church. The one that's foremost was Matthew 4.17, and this is, when I, when I came across this in reading about Erasmus, it, it shook me to think this would have been, if you opened your Bible or heard a priest back in that time, Matthew 4, 17, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he goes about preaching and teaching. Uh, this is how the Vulgate would have translated 
The beginning of Jesus' ministry, Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you wonder why they're selling indulgences. You would have gone and heard a sermon if you were to go to hear the gospel preached and, and why works-based religion and, and buying your way to heaven made sense is because the opening words of Jesus' preaching and teaching from the Vulgate would have been, do penance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Erasmus is the one that comes along and in his first retranslation of the Greek into Latin corrects that metanoia into repent, turn, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's no surprise then that the first thesis on the 95 thesis was when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4.17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So when I say Erasmus lays the egg, or they say, or I say he puts a footpath down that Luther paves, you could even see in just New Testament translation, it was one of the copies of the third edition of Erasmus's New Testament that Luther actually took and used to turn to write a Bible in German for the people to read. Both Luther and Erasmus were, agreement, and Erasmus were in agreement on this. They wanted the common person to have a Bible in their hand. Now, think about that today. You're all just staring at me because I really haven't used the Bible today. Uh, I understand that. But imagine this would be the standard for you coming to church every week or multiple times a week. You, you were beholden to whatever the man up front said, and because of illiteracy and even bad translation, how would you know what you were learning? What would you check it against? I mean, how momentous was it that not only it was the printing press in the Renaissance that believed people should be able to read it for themselves, but it was the bad translation that helped people once they started reading it to recognize we've been learning the wrong things, starting with the priesthood. So when we read this now, you're like, oh, Adam, I saw that. You wouldn't have seen it then. Uh, my parents were Catholic. My dad tells me of growing up in the Catholic church that prior to the time he was 15, he would go every week to Catholic Mass and hear a homily in Latin in Duquesne, Pennsylvania in the 50s and 60s. It wasn't until he was 16 that they finally started teaching their homily in English. So how could he have had faith? What could he have learned about the gospel? So that, that's momentous. It's first the translation of the New Testament. Second thing you learned from Erasmus' life um, about what he did to be the forerunner to Luther was he called for reform from within. He saw the impropriety in the clergy and congregations, and he wrote about it. He wrote this as a diatribe against the priests. Being sprinkled with a few drops of holy water is useless unless you clean up the inner defilement of the soul. God will hate your flabby religion. In private, you are more pagan than pagans. He wrote there are monasteries where there is no discipline, and he knew because he was in them up until the time he was 29. So he's not taking pot shots from the outside looking in. He was on the inside looking back. He says there's monasteries where there's no discipline, which are worse than brothels. So this is what he was calling for, reform from within. The big divide that was to come between he and Luther was Luther was going to call for a reformation of theology. Erasmus was calling for a reformation of piety. He saw impropriety. He saw sin and said, what we need to do is get back to the teachings of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount. Let's live holy lives. He wasn't calling for a change in theology, justification by faith. That's what Luther did that Erasmus was saying, hey, pump the brakes. Don't be so quick to throw the entire, you know, as they say, the baby out with the bathwater, which is eventually what happened because Luther got thrown out. So then he turns and says, all right, well, we've got to start our own thing. But the crack that started into the divide between Luther and Erasmus was over the idea of reform. Erasmus said slow down. Luther wanted to speed up. And yet they were contemporaries, and Luther saw he needed Erasmus on his team. 
Well, so did the popes. Which brings us to our fourth point. Erasmus was a voice of moderation. A voice of moderation. Leading up to the time of Luther's heroic stance at the Diet of Worms, Erasmus was able to survive between Luther and the papacy. He was friends of both. He wrote letters to both. He visited Pope Leo X. Pope Leo X was the one that uh, facilitated the selling of indulgences to pay for St. Peter's Basilica to be built. But with the papal bull in 1521 and Luther being excommunicated, now Erasmus, as he is both well known and respected by both sides and they both like him and both want him on their team, now he has to make a choice. He's loyal to the Roman Catholic Church, wants reform from within, and yet his contemporary, his friend, his ally, in the call for reform, gets kicked out of the church. The church. Excommunicated. Anathema. As in Luther's damned in the eyes of the Pope. So what does he have to do? Well, he stayed moderate. He tried to appease both, and by appeasing both, history shows pleased none. So those four things, he was a son of medievalism, the prince of humanism, the forerunner to Luther, and he was a voice of moderation. But what I want to do that now and turn our attention in the time we have left is what can we learn from him? Because we don't always maybe look at that side of our history, of our lineage theologically, because Erasmus isn't our theology. But I think we can still learn from his example. Uh, one, we can learn, and this isn't there yet, but I would just say when I look in the comparison of times, we see humanism around us today, as was happening at the time of the Reformation, and I think it, it, it helps for us to be able to recognize it for what it is. The humanism back then wasn't anti-God necessarily. It is today. Big difference between the two. Today, it's, it is trying to say we don't need God at all. It wasn't saying that in the time of Erasmus, and we can't project today's humanism on him, but we do need to be able to recognize it outside the church, and I think we do need to recognize where the church needs reformed from the inside. We, we can't turn a blind eye to places in the church we see today like Erasmus and Luther weren't willing to and say, look, if there's impropriety in the church, if there's things we're not paying attention to that we should, calling attention to that we should, we need to speak up on those. And both men were willing to do it. Luther wanted it more from a theological point of view. Erasmus wanted it more from a piety point of view. But what I want to talk about now is the lessons we can learn specifically. I have three. Three lessons from the life of Erasmus for young, bright collegians at an institution of higher education. Lesson number one, a lesson in theological intelligence. Erasmus teaches us a lesson in theological intelligence. Theological intelligence does come from the sky, but it does not fall down from it. Erasmus's work ethic is an example to us. We sometimes think it's just gonna happen, right? We come to this place to study, but perhaps just by being around this, it'll do the job. And Erasmus teaches us by his words and deeds to work hard at growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. If, if there was a life verse for Erasmus, and this is my interpretation of him, Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine says this. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Erasmus embodied that because he was a man that was going to say, hey, I'm going I'm to outwork you, outthink you. I'm, I'm going to write and read all day long. I'm going to get to the sources. I'm going to figure this out for myself. I, I'm not just going to take what's being handed to me. 
I'm gonna do the extra work on my own, and that work ethic showed itself in the impact he had and the people he influenced. As Proverbs 22:29 says, if you become that man or woman skillful in what you do, there seems to be, in the eyes of Solomon, a necessary result. You'll stand before kings and not before obscure men. That literally happened in the life of Erasmus. He teaches us that example of hard work. He learned Latin, Hebrew, Greek for the sake of growing as a Bible scholar. He learned from the examples of the early church fathers and even the secular writers. He was friends of his contemporaries, Melanchthon and Luther and Zwingli. Here's his advice I'll put up there and you can take some principles from it. Found this paragraph, even encouraging. He writes this when he's in his 30s to a young man he was tutoring. He says, these are the paths I have followed. First, choose the most learned teacher you can find. And as soon as you find him, make every effort to see that he acquires the feelings of a father to you. Your friendship with him is as important as an aid to learning. It is of no advantage to you to have a tutor, and I would substitute in the idea of mentor, spiritual discipler, unless you also have a friend. Second, be consistent in your work. Consistency produces by daily practice a greater result than you would suppose. Devote part of your time to silent thought. Devote part of your time to the contest of minds wrestling together. Don't be ashamed to ask questions or be put right. Lastly, choose the best authors for your reading, avoiding like the plague, and I find that line humorous because he means it literally. I mean, he's seen the plague, so we use that line today like, hey man, I avoided that kid like the plague, he was sick. Like when he says that, I'm like, like he, he saw people just straight up get the plague and die. He's just like, so when he equates like, don't read the bad people. It's like the plague. Like, he, there's something behind that. Like the plague. Like, don't read that garbage material. It's the plague. It'll kill you. Avoid, like the plague, those who are lax and indecent, especially at your present time in life, which is instinctively lewd and less prone to follow the good way than the evil way. In summary, from that paragraph, he writes to a young man he's tutoring. Befriend a mentor, study hard, and read the right books to learn a lesson in theological intelligence. I love the first one, befriend a mentor. When he says, when you find the most learned teacher you can, notice what he says, make every effort to see that he acquires the feelings of a father to you. And then I, that makes me think about 1 Thessalonians, Paul's relationship to the people in that church. 1 Thessalonians 2. He writes in verse seven, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. When I hear him say, make an effort to see that somebody that's gonna invest in your life spiritually acquires the feelings of a father to you, your friendship is important as an aid to learning, I, I, I'm convicted of that in my life. As I pursue older, godly, wise Christians to help shepherd me, I could come with a very consumeristic mindset to that. Would you disciple me? Great. And then I kind of set the terms a lot of times. And I, and I don't think, how am I endearing myself to that person who I'm asking to invest their most valuable resource, a non-renewable one, their time, into my life? 
And I think there's a word for us there. That if we want the affections of a father and mother, as Paul talks about to his people, how are you endearing yourself to those that you pursue, those you seek out? It's a good question to ask at any time in your spiritual journey. Because the more you endear yourself to that person that's going to invest their life into you, the more likely they're going to want to invest more into you. And it's easy. I look back at my life when it finally clicked to say, man, discipleship matters. I mean, it took me to like 27. It took me even years after that to realize, man, I should be doing everything I can to to make the time I'm asking of them worth their time, both in my preparation for it, the questions I ask, but even I had a mentor that I, he had a young family, and when I was asking him as I was a single guy in my late 20s for his time, that was time not investing in his family. So I had to figure out, hey, can I bring pizza to your house? feed your family so you and I could talk for an hour. And it developed this lifelong bond that we still have today 15 years later. And I just use it not to build myself up. It took me too long to realize befriending the mentor matters. How about studying hard? What's your theological work ethic? When he says devote your time to the contests of minds wrestling together, don't be ashamed to ask questions and be put right. Are you like Paul who in 1 Corinthians 15.10 does say it's by grace that I am what I am, but I worked harder than the rest. Or Colossians 1.29, this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Do you have that theological work ethic? Last but not least, read the right books. Develop discriminating tastes in what you fill your minds with as they make your way, their way to your heart and then develop an appetite for your soul. Do you realize what you read does go to your heart and infects your soul with an appetite for more truth or less. That's, that's how the appetite works. You eventually get a taste for it. And sometimes you have to question what you're starting here because it makes it its way there. He says this uh, from Erasmus, it's the height of madness to learn what you will later have to unlearn. It's the height of madness to learn what you will later have to unlearn. And unless you think Erasmus is a complete snooze, a nerd, whatever you want to call him. I mean, he does have this right after that quote. He writes, nothing is worse than excess. So you should from time to time abate the strenuousness of your studies by recreation. In 2017 terms, take a study break and have some fun. Like this weekend, like a direct application of this. Go to everything. Work hard, get your work done. And go to every possible thing you can in the next two weeks and enjoy it all as God's gift of grace in your life. Have fun with it. He says, indeed, a constant element of enjoyment must be mingled with study. I wonder what his constant element of enjoyment was. I think it was like he broke from his study in Greek and was like, I'm gonna read some Latin. (laughs) Good times. Some of you are out there. You're studying and then you're like, ah, some Calvin. Woo, this is awesome. Nothing against it. Uh, Indeed, a constant element of enjoyment must be mingled with study. Here's why. So that we think learning is a game rather than drudgery. He would say study hard, yes, but give time for enjoyment. And so that I think, you know, this weekend coming up, you got lots to do. Holy waffles. I'm not being blasphemous. Holy waffles, a little business of some guys here on campus making good waffles for you people, will be after the basketball game tomorrow night outside of King Hall. They paid me 20 bucks for that promo, uh, and I took it. No, uh, they just mentioned they want to serve the campus, so after the basketball game tomorrow night, outside of King Hall, come get some holy waffles. End of commercial. First, a lesson in theological intelligence. Second, a lesson in theological humility. And I think Erasmus would tell us this. The virtue of theological humility 
is to be esteemed as highly as good theology itself. The virtue of theological humility is to be esteemed as highly as good theology itself. Erasmus would teach us that theology has to be done in a spirit of humility, that is, in the spirit of Jesus Christ. Listen to his letter to Luther in 1519. Listen what he was trying to get across to Luther. He read enough of Luther to see this guy is a little bit brash. So he writes him. I think one gets further by courtesy and moderation than by clamor. That was how Christ brought the world under his sway. Things which are of such wide acceptance that they cannot be torn out of men's minds all at once should be met with close reason, forcible argument rather than bare assertion. Some people's poisonous propaganda is better ignored than refuted. We must take pains to do and say nothing out of arrogance or faction, for I think the spirit of Christ would have it so. We must keep our minds above the corruption of anger or hatred or of ambition, for it is this that lies in wait for us when our religious zeal is in full course. Leave that up there. I noticed three things in that statement to Luther. First, he calls Luther to consider the example of Christ. And we think of Christ's example when he describes himself. Matthew eleven twenty nine. he calls himself gentle and meek. And that was what Luther, what compelled or what compelled Erasmus to even come up with what he called the philosophy of Christ to say, look, Christ's philosophy of engagement was meek and gentle. Yes, he would have to admit when people challenged him and said, what about when he flipped the tables? Right? He would have to answer that. But at the basic, he would say to Luther, look, Luther, Christ was gentle and humble in heart even as he came about to preach the kingdom. He wanted people to know the truth, but he did it in a way that was able to be received. And so he would say, consider Christ's example in theological humility. He would also say, consider the context of the church. It should be true of a life of a church leader. As Paul would say, 1 Timothy 3.3, don't be violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. 2 Timothy 2.24 and 25, a teacher is not to be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, correcting his opponents with gentleness. When you look in that paragraph, when he says, things of which have so wide acceptance they cannot be torn out of men's minds at once, but reasoned with forcibly, think about the context of his time. This is the church that everybody's belonged to, and you're just going to come and try to flip the thing over, and you're just going to try to call everybody out? It may take a little bit of time, Luther, to do that. Be patient, and be gentle and gracious in doing it, because that's what leadership should do. The third thing I see in that paragraph is consider the corruption of your own motives. Look when he says, we must keep our minds above the corruption of anger or hatred or of ambition. For it is this that lies in wait for us when our religious zeal is in full course. And I think what he teaches us there is this. We potentially, in our zeal for truth and what is right, in that pursuit, we, get, we can get in an engagement and be filled with some form of anger that we might justify as righteous anger, but why, we might just be self-righteously justifying our bad behavior. I think he calls us to question that. As we love the truth and, and want to give the truth out, that we don't give ourselves a pass on how we say what we say matters so much to us. It's a lesson in orthopraxy matching our orthodoxy. So, second lesson, a lesson in theological humility, and last but not least, and this is the warning from his life, a lesson in theological moderation. He would ask, does a desire to have humility, or I would ask of his life, not him, because I, I, 
I esteem his pursuit of intelligence and humility, but I would ask this about his moderation. Does a desire to have humility in what you say you believe lend itself to lacking courage in saying something? We all would agree that there shouldn't be a divide between our private and public life for a fear of backlash. And we would all say that if you have a biblical conviction personally, don't be afraid to plant that flag publicly. The example of Erasmus appears at times that in his attempt to be humble in his orthodoxy, he seemed to be unwilling to plant the flag of his personal convictions for what it might cost his professional career. Listen to what he writes near the end of his life. Because now he's not liked by either side. He's not Catholic enough for the Catholics and he's not reformed enough for the reformers. And he writes this, I am always on the side of peace. My hatred of controversy is such that I dislike even truth that is subversive. Truth is a mighty unconquerable thing, but it must be deployed with a wisdom learned from the gospel. Think how slowly Christ revealed his teaching. Such is my hatred of dissension and love, for con- love of concord that I fear if it came to the point I should abandon some portion of the truth sooner than disturb the peace. And I think that's a warning from his life. Yes to his pursuit of intelligence and growth. Yes to his humility. But be warned by his moderation. Because by the end of his life, he was like the Civil War soldier, as Dr. MacArthur would say about moderation, who was in gray pants and a blue coat. He gets shot at by both sides. And he did. And towards the end of his life, he was, he was overshadowed in the, the Reformation movement by Luther, by those who were like, man, we're following that guy. At least he's going to take a stand. And he was eventually forgotten by the Catholic side because he wouldn't call out Luther in all the ways they wanted him to do that. He says this in the end of his life. They have nothing to bring against me except that I'm reluctant to risk my own neck by professing beliefs which I do not hold or regard as doubtful or reject. I have lost the friendship of innumerable scholars in Germany because I made it clear that I do not think as Luther does. Those who used to describe me as the champion of sound learning and the prince of true theology now find me less worth than seaweed. This was a guy that at the height of his times was the theological titan of his day, the intellect of his day, and now he considers himself less than seaweed. A lesson from that, James 1.8, Dr. Horner was talking to me about this, might be, for the man must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord who doubts in that which he asks for. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. As Dr. Horner said it, So precisely, a man like this who knows enough but won't move into the absoluteness of absolute truth. And I think that's a warning we draw from his life. So yes, in conclusion, we should be a fan of the example of a Luther and his boldness and Erasmus and his brilliance, but we should also learn from their mistakes. It was said in one uh, summation of the difference between Luther and Erasmus, Dr. Erasmus would give you a Tylenol for your broken bone while Dr. Luther would pull out the chainsaw. A little bit of understanding what is necessary for the surgery makes a good doctor. Erasmus didn't go far enough. Perhaps Luther in his brashness goes too far, but we all know looking back what God used both imperfect men to do for us today. So if this is the last message you hear on the Reformation, because we're like, Days away from October 31st. Hey, we're celebrating it over at the CAF. Leo is making a German, I don't know what to call it, a German Reformation Fest dinner, so be ready for that next Tuesday. But next time someone starts talking about Luther, 
you now know how you can mention the egg that hatched him by way of Erasmus, the forgotten reformer. Let's pray and you'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace in our lives that you would allow us to learn from Luther's example. We thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. We thank you that we can look at a life like this and learn from it and be challenged by it. Thank you for being at an institution like this where our learning is theological, but may it be humble. And as we encounter new ideas we may not have known prior to coming here, and we consider them, let our minds wrestle with them amongst our friends and the faculty, and let us be willing to be wrong for the right reasons, that we have much to learn, questions to ask. And bless that humility, the one that we would want to be meek and gentle in our efforts. Thank you for supplying the energy behind it for us to grow in Christ's likeness in our hearts and minds and hands. And maybe we'd be prepared even in the next few days to receive those visiting this campus, young minds, high schoolers that are going to be here. Receive them in the love of Christ and to encourage them and build them up. This could be a life-changing few days for some visiting us here. We thank you for all the opportunities we have. Be with us as we go. We pray in Christ's name.